And good evening, and welcome everyone to Proverbs, the Noahide Nations class. Uh, my name is Doug Taylor, and it's great to have you with us tonight. Uh, we are starting tonight in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21. And this was a, a verse that we skipped over last week because, frankly, I found it somewhat problematic. Uh, difficult to kind of figure out what was going on. And so got some help from uh, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, and I'll share with you uh, his approach. I uh, also want to share with you a different approach that I developed that uh, also fits in with the verse. So there's a couple of different ways we'll look at how to interpret this. But Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21 reads, uh, Hand to hand shall the evil man not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will escape. Hand to hand, and some of the commentators suggest that the word from is implied, so it would be from hand to hand, shall the evil man not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will escape. So, that raises some very interesting questions, and I'll let you take a first crack at those. What kinds of questions would we ask about that verse? Hand to hand shall the evil man not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will escape. What do you think? Yeah, Pamela, it does sort of sound like combat, doesn't it? I don't think that's what King Solomon's getting at, but he's getting at something. It's a rather unusual way that he's, um, he's presented that. Okay, Naomi, you're suggesting every step of his evil act. So we're getting into answering questions, but first we've got to ask them. All right, it's a very important step. Got to ask, what are, what are the questions here that we would want to understand? That's the first key thing. Oftentimes in our societies, we tend to want to jump to answers first without asking the questions before trying to go for the answers. Okay, good. Naomi, thank you. Who will, who will punish him? I mean, it says the evil man will not go unpunished, so who's doing the punishing here? Very good. Going to have to answer that. We're going to have to ask the question, well, what does hand-to-hand -hand mean here? I mean, we have never yet run across that particular phraseology in Proverbs, and so Solomon must mean something uh, in particular. Another question, and one that plagued me for a while, is why does the second half refer to the offspring of the righteous? Because the first half talks about the evil man and that he's going to get punished. But the second half talks about the offspring of the righteous rather than the righteous themselves, that they'll escape. You would think if it's just a contrast between one and the other, you would have something in the first half about the evil man and something in the second half about the righteous. But the second half gets into the offspring of the righteous. <clears throat> so, that's a question. And, yes, Naomi, how will the offspring escape? It says they will escape, and what are they escaping from, and how are they going to escape? Who's going to help them? Very good. Very good. So, anybody want to offer any suggestions about that before we try to answer some of those? Okay. So, Rabbi Moskowitz took an approach that is in line with the Malbum. And according to the Malbum, hand-to-hand -hand means that it's direct. There's no one in between. If you think about, like, um, passing something from hand to hand, there's nothing in between there. Uh, and so he's saying where God's personal supervision is involved, God's personal providence, and he is punishing someone, 
It's a direct thing. It's not through the laws of nature. So if God chose to punish an evil person, that punishment will come directly. Okay, from hand to hand. It will be direct. Because, uh, and it will be impossible for the evil person to avoid it. Uh, they, an evil person will not be able to get away with their evil when God's direct personal providence or personal intervention is involved. Now, if an evil person is operating only within the laws of nature, generally speaking, and we've looked at this from many angles up until this point, um, we see that the evil will get consequences. But it is possible for an evil person, I mean, in general, if you take them as a class, evil people will face consequences and will not get away with, with what they're doing. But sometimes they can. Sometimes an evil person could get away with it. Um, but not when God's personal providence comes into play. Uh, if he's just operating under the laws of nature, and if he's clever enough and happens to, you know, hit the laws of nature just right or whatever, then he might get away with it but not when God's personal providence is in the picture. So the Malbum is saying that hand-to-hand uh, -hand means a direct intervention by God in punishing that evil person. Now, the children of the righteous, they'll escape. Um, because according to the laws of nature, uh, if, you, if you're intelligent, you can work a way out of a problem. You can find a way out. But not every time. Yet, under God's personal supervision, if you are under God's person, personal supervision, God will protect you. Period. And uh, the, so the, those offspring of the righteous will escape. And we find that the offspring of the righteous do sometimes merit protection. Um, apparently, or that's, that's my understanding. Um, as an example, okay, Lot was protected, apparently, in the merit of Avraham. Uh, and it could be that this was because if Lot ended up being hurt, it would cause Avraham pain. Uh, don't know for certain, uh, but there, there is indication in the Torah that um, sometimes, as I understand it, sometimes the offspring of the righteous will be under uh, you know, special supervision of Hashem. So, even if you yourself can't protect yourself, uh, and you're not yourself on a level to get God's personal uh, providence, you may get it because of something that someone related to you uh, did uh, because maybe God doesn't want that person to be hurt or for whatever reason. So there's an effect, as we understand it, of, <clears throat> or can be, of God's personal supervision on the offspring of a righteous person. Okay? Any questions on that? Let me pause and make sure we're, we're squared away. Okay. Now, uh, let me just make sure I've covered all the points here. Um, right. The, in, when you're operating under the laws of nature, a tzaddik, a righteous person, can many times think his way out of a situation. But if the offspring of the righteous isn't trained how to think correctly, then they could fall into certain problems. And here we see that in some cases... God's personal supervision will protect them. We don't know the particulars of when and how that works, but we do have a principle that it does work. So, here we have the first half then and the second half. God's personal supervision uh, uh, affecting the evil person that they'll not go unpunished, and the offspring uh, of the righteous escaping. In this particular interpretation, we don't have an explanation as to why the two halves of the verse are put together. Okay, the explanation makes sense, but we don't really, 
I don't have an answer for that uh, as to as to why the two halves go together. But I did look at it a different way in order to try to get to that point, in order to be able to figure out why the two halves fit together. And to do that, I took a different approach in interpreting the phrase hand to hand. And here, here is my thinking. We clearly see that the second half of this verse refers to the offspring of the righteous. So then it would seem that the first half should also refer to the offspring of an evil person. So given that, we could interpret hand to hand to mean the generations of offspring of the evil man. His kids, and his kids' kids, and his kids' kids' kids, and so forth. That the hand-to-hand is, is, a, is a, I guess, an allegorical way of saying from generation to generation. Okay, and I started with that idea. And I did that in order to be able to see if I could find a way to interpret the verse so that the two halves would go together. So, if that were true, then the first half of the verse would be telling us that somehow um, the evil man will not go unpunished because of his subsequent generations, or there's a, there's a relationship there. So then I ask, all right, how would that work in the physical world? And here's a possible suggestion. Because the evil man is operating on the basis of his emotions and against reality, He's actively pursuing evil acts. And so it is a virtual certainty that this outlook is going to affect his children. They're going to learn that this is the way you act because children tend to imitate their parents. So unless that offspring makes a conscious decision to go down a different path, then he too will act on the basis of his emotions. He'll act selfishly. He won't act with wisdom and knowledge. He won't know how to analyze a situation, how to work rationally. And so it's a virtual certainty that he will make mistakes, just like his evil parent is doing. And he will likely follow in his parents' footsteps. And so not only will we have a situation where the children make mistakes, but the parents will have to endure watching the mistakes that their children make, and that will cause them pain. And even further, because the children are operating from an evil base and self-centered and so forth, it's quite possible that they will reject their parents because of their own evil ways. So the parents potentially could get a double whammy here. They have to watch their children making mistakes, which is painful, and getting the consequences of those mistakes, which is painful, and their relationship with their children could become estranged because of their uh, children's selfish nature. Okay, let me pause. Uh, yes, Pamela, like the evil hate that is passed down to children of... Uh, you mentioned Palestinians, yeah, certain people in the Middle East who teach their children to hate a particular group. And that gets passed down, and then they turn around and pass that down to their kids and their kids and their kids. Okay, and you're right. So that, that gets passed down, and as a result of that incorrect view of life, then the kids start making errors and making mistakes, and that can be painful to the parents and can be seen, in essence, as a punishment of the parents because um, they're the ones who taught the kids to be that way. So the parent gets the consequences of their own evil actions and they have to witness the consequences of their kids' evil actions, which I would submit sometimes uh, as a parent that it's a lot harder to watch your child be in pain than it is to be in pain yourself. So that's a possible uh, interpretation and approach. Now, by contrast, in the second half, the children of the righteous escape. And I'm interpreting it that that means they escape the kind of punishment that occurs in the first half. 
of the verse. Why? Because just like the children of evil people will learn evil ways, the children of the righteous will learn righteous ways. They'll learn how to think and analyze a situation in a rational way. So they should avoid the kind of mistakes that the children of the wicked will make. Okay? Now, I have to tell you that none of the commentaries that I read takes this approach in interpreting the phrase hand-to-hand. However, uh, that doesn't negate the validity of the, of, uh, of the interpretation, uh, and, it, and it does fit into the verse. So, you know, both can, uh, can potentially work. You know, part of our process here is that we are trying to understand what it is that King Solomon was trying to get across to us. Um, and, as we've discussed before, you'll find that the commentators um, take different approaches sometimes in, uh, in exactly how to do that. Okay, any questions? And uh, Pamela, you mentioned the parents relish their kids blowing themselves up. Yeah, that's sadly true. Uh, I mean, the kids go destroy their lives and the parents seem to think that is a, a virtue. Uh, which is an amazing, amazing thing uh, to somehow think that, you know, purposely destroying uh, a child's life is, is a virtuous thing to do. Um, but you're right, that, that is something that, you know, in, uh, they somehow get some, uh, you know, satisfaction from. In, in the same way that... Um, you know, a certain, uh, if you take a, an evil person who wants to take vengeance out on their worst enemy, and they finally do that, um, you know, do they actually, they, in, in one sense, they may feel like, finally, I got my satisfaction. In the other sense, um, you know, are they really at peace? Did they really get satisfaction within them? We certainly don't see people, I think, who live those kinds of lives, who uh, we could say are, are really um, uh, satisfied in, uh, you know, uh, enjoying themselves. Um, you know, the, the mafia or uh, gangster style life where you have to watch over your shoulder for uh, the, the other person who's always out to get you kind of thing. Uh, I mean, that can't be a satisfying life. You're constantly on the, uh, on the defensive and always having to watch out for who's going to get you. Uh, the righteous person doesn't live that kind of life. I mean, they're, they've got much better set up for being able to, uh, to be at peace and, uh, and enjoy what they're doing. So, okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, and Deanna, welcome. Great to have you here. Uh, we are about to flip over to Proverbs chapter 11, and we did 22 last week, so let us now skip over to verse 23. So Proverbs chapter 11, verse 23. And uh, Deanna, our approach is that we start with the verse and then we try to see if we can identify all the key questions that we need to answer in order to understand the verse, rather than try to jump immediately to uh, the answers or the understanding of what King Solomon's trying to say. Uh, the, the process, the Torah process, is to learn how to ask questions. And that's something that, uh, at least in, I think, U.S. society, we are generally discouraged from doing because authority figures generally don't like questions. Uh, it's much easier, I mean, it, it, and I can tell you this from a, uh, from a trainer's standpoint, because I do some of this, in, in a sense, if you have a room full of people and you're trying to teach them something, it's much easier on the trainer if nobody asks any questions, because you can just stand up there and talk and tell over the ideas that you have, and nobody challenges anything, and that's that, and life's fine, except that... Uh, the way that we really make ideas real to us 
is when they're clear to our mind. And in order to have an idea clear to our mind, we have to ask and eventually get answers to every question that we have around that idea. Once we've answered every question around an idea, then the idea is real to us. And then it starts to affect us and starts to change our behavior. Slowly, 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 in kind of a drip, drip, drip type of process. Um, so, uh, sometimes, you know, there's this temptation of, well, just give me the answer. I just want to know what the answer is. But the process of getting to the answer is what trains our mind and helps to sharpen our focus. And so in the, in the course of Proverbs, we not only learn about what the Proverbs are saying, but the methodology of getting there helps to teach us how to ask questions and analyze an idea and see where things do match and don't match, uh, identify the difference between, say, facts and interpretations, uh, and that helps us learn skills that we can take and use in virtually every area of our lives. So, let's see if we can apply that here with um, chapter 11, verse 23. And the verse reads, The yearning of the righteous is only good. The hope of the wicked is wrath. The yearning of the righteous is only good. The hope of the wicked is wrath. So, what kinds of questions come to mind as you look at those words or think about those words? The questions that we would need to answer in order to understand what the verse is getting at. The yearning of the righteous is only good. The hope of the wicked is wrath. Any thoughts about questions? Okay, I'm going to wait just a second. We've got a couple people typing answers. Okay, Naomi, thank you. What good one yearns for? Yeah, the yearning of the righteous is only good. So what's the yearning? What, what does that mean? Uh, yeah, thank you, Pamela. For, what is it that the righteous is yearning for? Uh, I mean, it says it's only good, but gee, we better know what it is that it's talking about. And then in the second half, in contrast, it says the hope of the wicked. Well, what are the wicked hoping for? We need to identify what that is. And kind of looking at the verse in total, why is the yearning of the righteous only good and the hope of the wicked is wrath? So yeah, Naomi, you're right. What, what are they hoping for? So a yearning is a very strong desire for something. So the first half of the verse seems to be saying that the very strong desire of the righteous, okay, whatever that is, is only good. And by only good, that would suggest that it isn't bad. In other words, there's no bad in it. It is only good. So my understanding of this from the study of Mishlite, the book of Proverbs, is that there are two kinds of righteous people. I mean, there's a whole spectrum, but I'm going to talk about two, two types, and you'll see here. There are those who do good, but they still have a desire for evil. Okay? They have just learned to overcome that desire, but the desire is still there. I mean, they want the same things as an evil person does, but they have learned to overcome that desire and instead operate on the basis of what they know to be good. So their intellect gets it, but their emotional desires are still there, and they just manage to overcome those emotional desires. Um, and, uh, and, and operate on the basis of the good. But they still have the emotional desires. Then there are the righteous who have truly risen above their desire for evil. It's not that they have to fight it off like the other kind of person, righteous person does. It's that they have developed their understanding of the true ideas so completely to such a degree that the ideas are completely real to them. 
So they don't even have a desire for evil anymore. Okay? So two different kinds of people. Um, all right, and it's, it's important for us to note that a person cannot just wish himself to be on that high level. We can't, or we can't pretend that we're there when we're not, because all that is is pretending. We have to be realistic with ourselves and recognize where we are and what we are, and then we can move forward from there. In the process of character development and in the development of righteous qualities, there is no skipping of steps. Um, wishing I were completely righteous or pretending like I'm completely righteous will not get me there. Uh, the ideas have to be real to me, and I can't fool myself into doing it. It's much more important and much more productive, uh, in my view and understanding, to be very real with who you are and where you are than to try to pretend that you're on a level that you're not. The way you get to that level takes time and study and review. And all that each of us can do is to be involved in those activities and let the ideas then slowly but surely uh, become real to us. Okay, uh, Naomi, you mentioned uh, it's lust in your book. Yeah, there are probably different translations. I, I'm assuming, uh, you, is it that that's the last word, the hope of the wicked is lust? Uh, <clears throat> Just want to make sure. I, I checked a couple different translations, and I think at least the majority of them had it as wrath. But the translators differ sometimes in how they uh, how they uh, translate the words. The Rabbeinu Yonah says that a person cannot be considered righteous, and here I understand mean the second type that we just described, the one who uh, is. You know, completely on the righteous level until he has completely eradicated all of his negative desires. And that includes the desire for evil, the desire for the physical pleasures, for acquiring positions of authority, all those kinds of things. Um, only the desire to do good remains. And he cites King David, who expressed this in Psalms 38.10, uh, when he said, before you, and the you is, means God, before you is all my yearning. Uh, what he's saying, as I understand it, is that you, God, know that there is no desire for bad included among my yearnings. Now, by the way, when I say that a person has to completely eradicate all of his negative desires, and this includes the desire for the physical pleasures, he's not suggesting an ascetic lifestyle. He's not suggesting that you have to, um, you know, give up the enjoyment of food and the enjoyment of marital relations or anything like that. He's, he's talking, as I understand it, about a life that's in the pursuit of physical pleasures, positions of authority, the pursuit of wealth, and all those kinds of things. doesn't mean those things are bad. It's all about where your focus is and what you use them for. If every one of those things is used... Um, for the purpose of uh, keeping you uh, healthy or keeping you in, in a position to be able to continue to be engaged in the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, then that's a positive thing. I believe it's Maimonides who made a statement to that effect, that all the stuff that you do should be to um, enhance your ability to be able to be engaged uh, in, in, uh, in learning. So. You know, when you eat or when you relax or when you sleep or when you rest, it's for the purpose of uh, preserving in, uh, your body and recharging your energy so that you can be involved in the real good, which is uh, the world of learning and the world of Torah study. So that's the first half, the yearning of the righteous. Um, so let's take a look at the second half. Um, And, oh, and, and I, um, I don't know that I elaborated on it fully enough, but my understanding of the yearning of the righteous is to be involved in <clears throat> the world of ideas, the world of learning, 
uh, for there to be justice, for life uh, in the world to be lived in accordance with uh, Torah values. Uh, so their yearning is, is only what we would call good. Uh, because they see the true ideas, the ideas are real to them, and uh, and so that's that's their their yearning and their desire. So now the second half says the hope of the wicked is wrath. So the commentators have different views on what this means, and I'd like to focus on two viewpoints. Ibn Nakmiyash, Mitsudith David, and Ibn Ezra all explain the second half that the hope of the wicked is to find someone whom they can vent their anger against. In other words, they're angry and their hope is to find someone to vent that anger at. Okay? Now, if we stop right there, does that raise any questions? If we just say, well, the angry, uh, the, the, the wicked are looking for someone to vent their anger against. Does that raise any questions in anyone's mind? That particular interpretation? First question I have would be, well, what are they angry about? <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, this, this interpretation presumes that the wicked are angry. And so we'd ask, well, why would they be angry? Anybody got any thoughts about why, why would wicked people be angry? Any ideas? Might be good for me to pause, and it's interesting, this just came up this morning in a class we had with Rabbi Moskowitz, where we went over the idea of, well, what is anger? And let me, let me pause and see if you have any thoughts about that question. If you had to define anger, what is that? What is anger? something that happens to a lot of people. We talk about it a lot. What does it actually turn out to be? Pamela, very good. Uh, you mentioned things not going according to their way of thinking. Yeah, and I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit on that and suggest that there are two components. Number one, the person has an expectation, and two, it didn't get met. I mean, if you think about all the times that we get angry, we have a certain expectation that reality should look this way, and it doesn't. Uh, we, we don't think a guy should pull in front of us on the freeway. Uh, we don't think we should have to stand in a long line for something, and so Reality hasn't measured up to our expectations, and as a result, uh, we allow ourselves to become angry. So, I'll suggest that the wicked are angry because of this point. They can't get their desires met. They have a desire for something, and reality isn't showing up that way. And so, reality is not allowing them to get their expectation fulfilled, and they're angry as a result. And since their desires are based on their emotions, which don't give them a realistic view of the world, then their desires are going to be out of line with reality. And in that case, even if they actually get the thing they want, Maybe it's a bigger house, maybe it's a faster car, maybe it's a powerful position, maybe I closed that big million-dollar deal or whatever. It won't truly fulfill the desire that they have because the desire is based on an emotion and the emotion can't be fulfilled. So they become angry as a result. 
and they are looking for a way to vent that anger. Somebody they can vent it against, because they don't want to vent it against themselves. So what do they do? They vent it against somebody else. I mean, we've probably all done that before. We're upset because reality didn't go our way, and so because we had to stand uh, for a long time in the line, when we finally get up to the front of the line, we vent our anger against the bank teller or the ticket taker or whoever it happened to be. You know, had nothing to do with them, uh, but they happened to be there and we vent their anger. So uh, these two commentators, or these three commentators, are saying that the wicked person's hope is for someone they can use as a lightning rod for their anger. So if that's the case, uh, in this interpretation, the verse would be telling us about the hope or desire of the righteous versus the hope or the desire of the wicked. The righteous are hoping only for good, and the wicked end up hoping for someone to vent their anger against because their unrealistic desires can't be fulfilled. So that's one approach. Okay, any questions about that approach? Okay, the Grah has a slightly different interpretation of the second half. Uh, and I'm going to read you from uh, the Judaica Press, uh, Book of Proverbs. Um, he, the Grah explains that the righteous long only for something intrinsically good, not for something that affords pleasure, but something that leads to a good end. But the wicked long only for the pleasant, to derive pleasure in this world. Instead, all their hope will turn to wrath even in this world. Okay, let me read it one more time. The righteous long only for something intrinsically good, not for something that affords pleasure, but something that leads to a good end. But the wicked long only for the pleasant, to derive pleasure in this world. Instead, all their hope will turn to wrath, even in this world. Now, these two interpretations of the second half are very similar, but the cross seems to be indicating that the hope of the wicked is for pleasure and that this hope will turn to wrath in this world. Although he doesn't specifically say why that hope will turn to wrath, I think we can presume it is for the same reason that we cited before, that the desire for pleasure will not ultimately fulfill the person, and so they'll end up frustrated and in an angry state. Okay? Any questions about this interpretation or any aspect of this verse? Okay, I will take no response as a no. Uh, so let's move on. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11 verse 24 and it says there is one who scatters and yet is given more while one who withholds from what is proper only for a loss let me read it again there is one who scatters and yet is given more while one who withholds from what is proper only for a loss Okay, what kinds of questions should we be asking? There is one who scatters and yet is given more, while one who withholds from what is proper only for a loss. Okay, Pamela, interesting question. Is this verse about generosity or is it about meanness? Okay, good. What else? Naomi, thank you. What is, what is gathering and giving more? Yeah, it says there is one who scatters and yet is given more. So what are they scattering and what are they giving more of? Okay. And in the second half, same thing would apply. Uh, what's, 
what's the second half person withholding and what would we consider proper because it says withholds from what is proper and why does that result in a loss so let me ask it to you this way what is it that one can scatter and yet receive more while one who withholds from what is proper will end up with a loss. Can you think of anything that falls in that category? Pamela, very good, okay? That's one possibility. Tzedakah, charity. One can scatter charity and yet get more back, and one who withholds charity may end up with a loss. Very good. Anybody think of anything else? Ah, Naomi, very creative. Loving your neighbor. Okay. There's something that can come back to you multifold. Very good. Any others? I also thought of um, farming seeds. You know, if you scatter them out, you can receive more. Um, and Naomi, you mentioned small goodwill and thoughts. Yes, that too. Okay, so let's see. The commentators here give several interpretations. And I would like to look at four of them. So, according to Rashi, King Solomon's talking here about uh, charity. Pamela, what you mentioned. People scatter money to charitable causes and they end up with even more. Now, it would logically seem that if you hung on to your money, you would have more. But in the case of charity, Rashi's saying, if you give, you will get back even more. Okay, and it's my understanding that there is some, there is, you know, support in the Torah for that. So if that were the case, what's the second half saying? Well, it's saying that one who doesn't give charity when it's proper to do so is going to end up with a loss. That is, they'll have less. And this idea is echoed in the Talmud and in the works uh, of the medieval rabbis. So Rashi's interpretation is, we're talking about charity here and the effect, the effect on the person of giving it. Okay? Pamela, you're right. Charity, in a sense, is like an investment. And you never know when it's going to pay dividends, but you know it's the thing to do. The Malbum has a slightly different interpretation. And let me read what he wrote. I'm in uh, the Malbum's book, uh, on Proverbs, uh, published by Feldhahn, on verse 24, he had a very interesting way of putting this. He said, as the sages taught, it is best to strike a balance between extravagance and miserliness. The middle way is the recommended ethical path. If a person is to tend to one extreme, however, Worldly wisdom usually considers it better to tend towards miserliness and at least conserve his resources. Here, on the contrary, the master of Proverbs declares extravagance better. It can at least give a person a good reputation and may ultimately even attract business, whereas miserliness repels people, isolates an individual, and may even reduce his opportunities in business. So, interestingly, he's taking a very pragmatic approach where he's saying if um, you are, uh, you know, a little more extravagant, that that can lead people to want to, um, you know, send business your way. I mean, people like a generous person and contrast that with how people react to a stingy person. Uh, people don't like to be around someone who's stingy. 
And if, if a person gets a reputation for being stingy, people tend to kind of shy away from that. They would much rather deal with someone who is um, you know, more generous. So he's taking uh, that particular approach. He's focusing on how other people will view the person who gives, and people who are generous will be viewed better by the community, which can lead to more business and more wealth. And the exact opposite is true for the person who is miserly or stingy. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So that's second of four possible interpretations. The Talmud looks at this verse with regard to the teaching of Torah. So if a generation is interested in Torah, then you should spread your Torah knowledge out to them. And in doing so, that is, by teaching, you expand your own knowledge. By contrast, one who withholds his knowledge of Torah when the students are interested, then his Torah knowledge will be less because he will miss the learning opportunities for himself that come through teaching. So the Talmud's taking the point that the scattering and the withholding is all about Torah knowledge. And a person who takes his Torah knowledge and shares it with interested students is going to yet get more out of it because when you have to turn around and teach something to other people, you get more from it. While at the same time, a person who withholds uh, from teaching when people want to hear, uh, that's going, they're going to lose out on the learning opportunities that they would have gotten through teaching. Okay? Any questions on, on that? Pamela, you've asked whether, you said it looks like it applies to any gift or talent. I'm not certain that that's necessarily true, although you could potentially interpret it that way. Uh, let's say you had a talent for basket weaving. Uh, if you spread that talent around, uh, will you get more back from it? I don't know that we can necessarily carry that uh, to, to any, uh, any gift or talent. Um, I didn't read any of the commentaries that take it quite that broadly. Uh, but certainly you can take the idea and apply it in a certain situation and say, you know, if you have a certain talent for something or a certain gift for it, and it's within your power to do so, um, why wouldn't you use that to benefit other people? Uh, and to, you know, share that talent or that ability. Uh, and you're thinking of, of music. Um, yeah, I think if you're inclined in that area, uh, then, you know, when, <laughs> when you share the music, um, other people benefit too. And it's an interesting point that you bring up about music because um, I was... Uh, went through school and into college uh, as a percussionist and uh, one of the points that was made to me somewhere along the way and I think it was by my college wind ensemble professor said if you go into a symphony concert and you have I don't know a thousand people sitting in the auditorium listening to 55 people in a symphony who is getting the most out of the music? I'll submit to you, it's the 55 musicians. Why? Because they have been through that music over and over so many times that they are appreciating it at a deeper and richer level than the audience which is hearing it for the first time. So in the same way, if you have a talent for music and you learn how to perform and you share that with other people, you yourself will also gain because by the time you've practiced a piece, say, that you're going to play for, um, you know, your, even your relatives. Your relatives are hearing it for the first time, but you've been over that piece probably a hundred or a hundred and fifty times. And so your understanding of, of that music and 
the depth to which you can appreciate it is greater than theirs. So you win and they win. So, good point. Uh, Naomi, you've brought this up with regard to character qualities like obedience and honesty. Uh, the more we cultivate, the more we're benefited. That is also very true. Um, you know, uh, any, any character development that we do, uh, we don't usually think of character qualities as something we scatter but certainly operating in accordance with those character qualities um, would be something that we do on a, you know, on a daily basis. Um, a person who is kind and generous to other people, uh, and I think we're going to see that uh, if we get to it tonight in the next verse, um, is going to benefit from that, uh, whereas somebody who withholds doing that uh, is not going to get the benefits that they otherwise would have and will end up in a lost position. The final very brief uh, comment that I wanted to make, number four, is Rabbi Joseph, uh, let's see if I can pronounce this right, Gekatilia, uh compares giving charity, so he's taking the charity approach, to nursing a child. So this is an elaboration, really not a fourth interpretation. But he compares giving charity to nursing a child. As long as the mother is actively nursing, milk continues to come into her breasts. But when she stops nursing, the milk dries up. So very interesting uh, you know, real-life example of kind of how that process works. So several different interpretations, but they all... Uh, I think get back to that the same underlying idea in the verse uh, about being able to put something out and get more back from it while withholding it can put you into a lost position. Any questions about that? Okay. Uh, let's see if we can do one more here. Um, and that's Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25. It says, A benevolent soul, or a generous person, will grow fat, or become rich, and one who sates will himself be sated. So, sated in the sense of, uh, or is, is uh, connected, as I understand it, with the word satisfied. Uh, so, for example, when you eat a big meal, and, and you're full at the end, you are sated, you are satisfied. Uh, so the verse is saying, a benevolent soul will grow fat, will grow rich, and one who sates will become satisfied. Any questions about that verse? What are the questions we would want to know here? Benevolent soul will grow fat, and one who sates will be himself be sated. A number of, uh, I think, um, the translations stick a word in there to say one who sates others will himself be sated. I think that's implied by the verse. So, one of the questions that I would ask is, how does a soul become fat or rich, depending on whichever, uh, whichever translation you happen to be working with? Um, okay, and Pamela, yours, your translation says, the, the soul that blesses. Um, yeah, that's starting to go down one of the interpretive paths. Um, so, and we'll, we'll see, I think, how that, uh, how that relates together. Um, and the other question I would ask is, how does one who sates others become sated himself? So, Rashi's position on this is that a benevolent soul is one who easily gives his money to help other people. Uh, and as for the second half, he indicates that one who feeds the poor will himself be sated with good. Now, 
It's not clear to me in Rashi's interpretation what the difference is between the first half and the second half. He seems to be looking at the first half just slightly differently. That is, the benevolent soul gives money to help others, and the second half talks about feeding the poor. But it's not immediately obvious to me how the benevolent soul in the first half grows rich or becomes rich, and it's not immediately obvious to me why the person in the second half who sates others will himself be sated. It may be that the interpretation I'm going to share with you uh, answers those questions, and this could be what Rashi was intending. And, and I should say here that I'm assuming that King Solomon used the word soul for a particular reason, not just as a different way of referring to a person. Uh, you know, sometimes people will say, refer to you know, souls as just a, another way of talking about person. I've used it term, you know, used it in terms of, or heard it used in terms of people who lost their lives on a ship. You know, 12 souls went down with the ship. Well, it's 12 people. They're not trying to make any, um, you know, unique comment there other than 12 people went down. But I'm, I'm assuming that King Solomon picked soul um, as a, uh, for, for a particular reason there. Uh, and Pamela, you said the Hebrew says bracha. Okay, uh, that is blessing. Uh, now, whether it also means benevolent, uh, uh, whether it means blessed soul, whether that has another meaning I'm, of benevolent, I'm not sure. Benevolent was a translation given by at least one, if not two, of the different sources that I looked at. Um, so you, you may be right. But let's look at it in that term. And this, uh, this is an approach that was suggested by my wife, Cal. <clears throat> soul has to do with what's going on inside of you. So if you're a benevolent or a blessing, a soul that's, that's blessing or blessing others, you are thinking about others. You are thinking positively about them. You're thinking in terms of the system of humanity, you see yourself in reality, you're focused on the needs of other people. So your outlook on life is a, a one of blessing other people or seeing the best in them or benevolent to them. Um, just like, a, you know, a, a benevolent king who wants to do the best for his people. He's, he's concerned about his people. He's not self-centered looking into himself, uh, but he's uh, he's, he's thinking more in terms of their needs. Ra uh, interestingly, ra that produces a sense of gratification in you that, uh, according to Rabbi Hirsch, and this is his approach, that sense of gratification that's produced in you, uh, he is saying, is greater than the happiness of the people that you're helping. So... The first half seems to be talking about the benefits to your soul, your inner self. You'll become fat or rich, not in a monetary sense, but in the sense of wealth to your soul, what we could call positive internal gain. The second half seems to be talking about taking action on that. It says, he, one who sates will himself be sated. So he sates others, that is, he physically provides for them so they are satisfied. And then he is also satisfied. And that begs the question, well, how does that work? Okay, he turns around and provides for other people, so how does he himself become satisfied? And I'll suggest that could happen in a couple of ways. First, because he's generous and helps the community, the community turns around and helps him and ensures that his needs are satisfied. This gets back to our previous verse. The person who is generous and kind, people want to do business with him, they want to hang around him. You know, he's, he's generously supported because he is generous. Second, even if the first didn't occur, even if he wasn't, you know, directly physically helped by the community, he'll have the satisfaction of knowing that he helped others which will provide him with satisfaction. So he is sating other people. He himself will be sated, not necessarily with, you know, bread or uh, 
cheese or whatever he's giving out to feed the poor or help them, but he will be satisfied by the knowledge uh, and the realization that he's helping others. So the first half would be talking about what happens inside a person, and the second part is about actions taken in the physical world to manifest that. So it would seem, then, if we take this interpretation, that the subject of the verse would be the benefits, both internal and external, of helping others and being outwardly focused. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, in that case, we'll stop there.